And we've been working through James. And the context I think uh, many may have missed in the book of James is that James is writing to an assembly, predominantly Jewish it seems by the texts that he uses and the admonishments that he's bringing, but they're an assembly. They're a group of people, a church, and there's problems in the church. And so the entire uh, epistle is written to correct and challenge the mixed multitude in this group. And we miss that if we take it all to ourselves as believers and apply all this to ourselves as believers We miss the context because a lot of these admonitions, and today is no different, are to the unbelievers in the group because they're causing all sorts of problems. And we saw James kind of break the whole thing wide open in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? And he goes on to explain those things that, that... They have a driving hunger that's unfulfilled. That's the mark of an unbeliever that's unsatisfied, that hasn't had all their needs met in Jesus Christ, like we were just praying in our song there. They they have unanswered prayers. They pray. They're hypocrites. They're praying, and their prayers are not answered because they're asking with wrong motives, and their motives is to please themselves. Then... That's not the mark of believers. And in verse 4 last week, we, we, he really pulls the lid off and he talks about them as being adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is a hostility toward God? Believers don't have hostility to God. They love God. We're not enemies of God. We love God. And yet... All of these admonitions to the unsaved can be used as checkpoints for us is that remaining sin that remains within us getting an upper hand in some of these areas, right? So we can take it by principle and apply it to ourselves and check ourselves because we still have sin that dwells within us. We are not perfect yet. And so that sin can act the way the world acts. When we sin, we're lying against the truth of who God calls us in Christ. We're lying against the truth of who God calls us in Christ. And so, it is applicable to us, but it's very interesting. And beginning in verse 5, James is going to provide us with the only answer to the quarrels and conflicts in the group. Because they were coming from those who professed to have genuine faith, but who were not possessors of salvation, but mere professors. James, does, he gives us an evangelistic message here. In verses uh, 5 all the way through to 10, it's really an evangelistic uh, approach to those that are in the group thinking they're part of it, deceiving themselves possibly, or deceiving others. And he says, this is what you need to understand about your hearts. So with that, let me read the portion of Scripture for you, beginning in verse 5, going to verse 10. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? 
He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little book of James that is so black and white, so clear. And Father, we pray that if there be any professors amongst us that are professing the name of Christ, but don't know the power, don't have that grace that superabounds over their sin, active in their lives, Lord, that they would take note of this and humble themselves. Uh, That's all James is asking of those in the fellowship that he's addressing to do, is to take heed to his admonitions here. And if they're not doing that, to humble themselves. And so, Lord, we pray that your blessing upon the sermon this morning. And Father, we ask you to use it for your glory in Jesus' name. So he starts out in verse 5 with a very difficult scripture. Or do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The New King James Version says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? In the NSV we've just read, the NIV says, Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? It's kind of different from the NSB. The ESV says, or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns earnestly over the spirit that has made, uh, he has made to dwell in us. That's more like the NASB. And the King James Version says, or do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Here's one where I like the King James Version. I really do. You see, It's a very difficult verse to interpret. And there are a lot of interpretations. And the big question is, what spirit is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the human spirit? I side with the fact that it's the human spirit because of the context of everything James has been teaching us. And I'll try and open that up for you now. The King James Version translates the latter part of this verse, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Hasn't James been talking about envy and lust and the desires that you have that are unmet and so forth? In the context of James' thought previously and looking ahead, it would seem best to take the verse in the general context of the teaching of Scripture that the humanity, humanity, the human spirit has a common problem with sin and this sin is seen in the heart that is given to envy. The mark of an unregenerate person is always the need for more. And the mark of a true, genuine believer should be peace. 
satisfied, contentment. I, I still remember before I was saved. I was 19 years old when I trusted Christ. I was always looking for something. I was always checking it out. I used to sit by my window when I was a young teenager and didn't have my license yet and, and look out the window to see if somebody was coming by to pick me up. To go do you know what? <laughs> Whatever, right? Wasn't going to church, believe me. From 16 to 19 years old, just about destroyed my own life. That was that envying, that spirit within me that craved something. I didn't realize it was Christ until I heard the clear gospel. And I realized that I wanted something that I could never achieve on my own. And I believe that that's the, the idea here. The interpretation also fits with the previous context of James in 4, 1 through 2. The teaching of the Old Testament points at the same inclination of the heart to envy in sinful people. Genesis 4, 7 says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In Genesis 6, 5, the flood, God identifies the human heart. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. That is quite an indictment. And for that reason, God sent the flood and took breath off the earth, except for eight souls. In Genesis eight twelve, after the flood, he says, for the intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Proverbs twenty one ten, the soul of the wicked desires evil. Boy, it's true. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. So, how is it that the natural spirit in man operates? Well, my interpretation brings the understanding. It seems to be in keeping with James, what James has said in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he goes into that craving, that desire, that earnestly lusts after. It's the human spirit. Now James is going to provide the only answer to that terrible condition and provide the cure for the quarrels and conflicts that are incessant and coming from those evil motives of that mixed multitude. I mean, I used to think the church at Corinth was bad. I think James is leveling something else, another church, that was really struggling, right? So, look at verse 6. But he gives a greater grace, and therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. First word of verse 6 is a contrast. And you can see the contrast between those who believe and those who don't. Those who believe have a greater grace than those who do not believe. Even though there is in the natural heart of every human being born into this world an inherent bent towards envy. Envy for what? Lusting what? A desire for something other than God. But God provides grace which is greater than the propensity 
to envy. He shuts that thing down. At Romans chapter 5, look at Romans chapter 5. Therefore, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace. It was so amazing to me. When I believed, I believed reading a book about prophecy and I read about the rapture and being raised Catholic, I knew all about Jesus and God words and everything, but I had never connected the dots. And the book put the dots in order for me and I realized, boy did I realize I was a sinner, but I realized if Christ were to come back that very night for his own to take them up off the earth to heaven before the tribulation, that I would not be going with them. I knew who I was and who I wasn't. And I prayed a simple prayer. I want to be one of yours. Now, I don't advise you to use evangelism like that. That's the way God worked in my heart. Definitely an anomaly, right? But the truth of the matter is, at that moment, I trusted Christ with all my heart and soul and peace flooded my soul. So much so, I remember to this day, I folded my hands over my chest And I just smiled, and I went to sleep. And I woke up in that same position, and the peace was still there. And my dear wife, who's now, she was my girlfriend then, my wife knocked at the door. I was at my parents' house. And I opened the door. I said, Barry, all that Jesus stuff is true. And she went, oh, no. Because she wasn't a believer yet. (laughs) Peace. See, there was no longer that craving, right? To do sin for something more. And oh, that peace is so marvelous. God provides grace, which is greater than a propensity to do evil. And the contrast is between the inner drive to envy with something that is greater than that drive. It's reminiscent of Romans 5.20 as well. It says there, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. I love the Taliabo. Taliabo used to say that it yipits. And, and I don't know where this word comes from, but yipit means to come over the top of something and dominate it. So that something no longer has the power anymore. It yipits it. And, and what grace does with that heart that lusts after Things and envies everything that it can't have and is never satisfied. Grace comes and it overpowers it. <laughs> Isn't that what regeneration is? If you haven't experienced that, if you haven't experienced that power, it makes you stand back and go, what happened to me? What happened to me? Check your heart. It's important. 1 Timothy 1.12 says the same thing. Apostle Paul's account of his gratefulness to Christ Jesus, his Lord for his salvation, and after recounting his life without Christ, he states in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, superabounding, above and beyond all that he needed, more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And then it says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James identifies the source of the problem, even as he's explaining the answer to the problem. And that isn't, he, he, he identifies the source of the problem, even as he explains the answer to the problem. Pride, human pride, will deflect 
the grace of God. Now, I'm amazed as I look out on the congregation, there's a lot of young families here. And I want to say something to you young families, okay? Because our culture teaches us a different way to raise our children than the Bible does. And in the fall, we're going to have a, a, a series on child rearing and parenting and so forth. So you be sure you come to the fellowship groups in the fall. Looking forward to that. It's going to be a great session. But this is why as parents, we train our children to submit to our will. Not their will. We're the parent. Some of you need to hear this, okay? I've heard of some moms who cook three and four different things for their three children. <laughs> if you were, had my mom, you'd be sitting outside. She just wouldn't even put up with that. She'd just set you outside. I am no short order cook. Eat what's before you and clean your plate up. Oh, my will was like nothing up against Eva. Are you kidding me? We never admitted that we were, had German and Dutch blood in us. Because six boys, we had strong Italian upbringing from my father. His genes were strong, right? But I thank God for Mama because she was German and she at least brought a little order to our Italianness. Okay? <laughs> nope. This is why you bend their will to your will as a parent. It's your job. They're only loaned to you. You think they're yours. They're not yours. They're God's. And if, if need be, there needs to be discipline to help them to bend their will. Because you know what? Their will is bent on doing their own desire. That human spirit in them is strong. And parents, if you've been parents for any long length of time, you know it's strong. Well, why do we do that? Because we are to teach. We are to train them in preparation for the day that they will submit to God for their eternal salvation. And if you don't, it's going to be very difficult for them to render themselves submissive to their Creator when they come of age and understanding. Children who insist on their own will, who refuse the imposition of a parent's will over them, will not easily submit themselves to God. And they have practiced autonomy. And as the child gets older, he becomes more autonomous from you and definitely from God. Now, kids can fake it. They can. They can pretend to be submissive and kind of go along with the flow until they can't anymore. Usually at the magic age of 18 years old. Another fallacy of our culture where they're adults now. They can do their own thing. And some children do. And they just leave. Sad. Parent, if you're a parent with small children, pray every single day for the salvation of your child. It's a supernatural work, but you need to work together with them and do what you've been called to do as a parent to prepare them. Now that was, I'm not even going to charge you for that. That was, that was on the other side that came to me this morning, not on the sermon, okay? 
And we're not going to get through my sermon today, not even by half. So I want you to understand that here the proud one is portrayed as a defiant sinner setting himself up as the center of all things. There is no need of God in their eyes. Why did that shooter go and kill those children? There's no fear of God in his eyes. He has no fear of God, no retribution. And it's rampant in our culture. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, if there is no God and there's no repercussions, then you've got to grab all the gusto you can get right here and right now because this is all there is. Sadness. No need of God. But it's even more serious than the fact that grace is merely not available to those who are proud because God is opposed to them. That word opposed is a term taken from military language and it talks of an engagement and pictures an army ready for battle. (laughs) You want to help a lost person understand their loss? Talk to them about God being opposed to them. In their unbelief, in their desire for the things of the world, in their lust to satisfy those inner cravings, they have chosen to be an enemy of God, and he is arrayed against them. It says the wrath of God abides on them. It hovers over them. If they are to die, it's all over. There are no second chances. You see, the word opposed is a strong word, so this is serious. The greater grace is available. God provides it, And he's prepared to give it, but human pride turns God's willing generosity into a different attitude towards the sinner. Human pride is resisted by God. Humility is the foundation. It's the open doorway. It's an empty hand. It's the only way to experience that greater grace, which is freely available to cure the sick heart that is bent on envy. Humility opens the way in the understanding that God's justifying, sanctifying, glorifying grace of salvation is free and given to sinful people, ones who are undeserving and who are helpless to help themselves. No matter how sinful the person may be, no matter how much he may love and follow the world, no matter how enslaved to the lusts and passions for the things of the world he may be, God's grace has more than sufficient power to save and redeem and purify and sanctify that one. But only the humble will ever experience that greater grace. You've got to give it up. You've got to let go. I remember witnessing to a person that just kept arguing with me. I can do it. I'm, I'm okay. I can do it. I'm, I can do it. I can do it. To the point that I didn't even know what we were talking about anymore. But that was their response. I'm okay. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Until two in the morning. And the person finally said, all right, I give up. I can't do it on my own. Again, not a way of evangelizing that I would promote But God was at work. I was two weeks old in the Lord, and I was talking to somebody that was very close to me. 
She's been a believer ever since that time. But she was Greek. She is Greek. And she's from Sparta. Do you know what the Spartans fight like? God got a hold. That greater grace came over and yeeped it, that human pride. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Gosh, we're a mess, aren't we, people? We are such a mess. Well, beginning in verse 7, James does a marvelous thing. He gives us 10 commands by the use of 10 imperative verbs. They're imperatives, okay? They're commands. And it reflects what a truly humble heart looks like. It's not a list of things someone has to do to be saved, but rather it's a list that identifies the ingredients of a heart that has been humbled and contrite. The work has been done. They're an heirist, okay? The work has been done, and it lists 10 things or 10 areas of this work. James is using these commands to call those who would read this letter away from their pursuit of the world, their endeavor to fulfill their lusts, away from their attempts to satisfy their envy, for self-rule, for autonomy. Look at verse 7. Submit. Resist, verse 8. Draw near, verse 8 again. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, verse 9. Be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning. And finally, the tenth one in verse 10, humble yourselves. Ten admonitions, very strong admonitions. There's portions like an epistle itself. It includes admonitions to believers to do away with any remaining aspects of their former worldly life that might continue to mar their spiritual lives, but the purpose throughout this letter, the main purpose, the main interpretation of this text has got to be, he's talking to unbelievers. Okay? So don't get that confused. The final words of the book clarify this. He says in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner, never used of a believer, he turns a sinner from the air of his way and will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the very first one, let's just start working through these 10. I'll have to go back and review them all next week uh, as we finish them off. Submit. Now there's no greater indication of humility than the willing submission of yourself to another. None. In this case, the willful submission of the self to the rightful authority of the Creator through an obedient response to the gospel of grace shows humility. Submit, it says. Submit, therefore, to God. Why is the therefore there? Well, because He gives a greater grace to those that humble themselves. And it's therefore... Because of what you've been doing is protecting your own autonomy. So there's a contrast here. Submit, therefore, to God, he says. The final words of James clearly says that James is dealing with unbelievers. It's the opposite of that willful autonomy. 
and the intentional renunciation of the whole life back to God. You see, when we were talking about those that love the world, those adulteresses and so forth that he's addressing, we said they consciously choose the world over God. It's, it's an act of their will. They know what they're doing, and therefore, they become the enemies of God. Well, in Matthew 10, 39, we see he who has found his life is going to lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You've got to give it up. You've got to quit protecting yourself and let it go. The sin of our first parents shows us that they chose to remove themselves out from under the rule of God in their lives in order to be their own authority. The sin of Adam and Eve was that they wanted to be autonomous from God and make their own decisions. Life outside of God. And therefore it stands to reason in order to get things back in order... We need to submit ourselves under the power and reign of God Almighty again through belief in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who gave himself on our behalf. Submission is very important. I, I never understood the, the big brouhaha about lordship salvation. I mean, is there any other? I remember coming back and finding all the Christians in America fighting over lordship salvation and does Jesus need to be the Lord of your life in order for you to be saved? Well, duh, yes. What's the battle? Well, that's works. Works. It's all supernatural anyways. It's that, that grace that superbounds over. It's that greater grace that he gives to the humble. What are you talking about? And I went back to the tribal people who are new believers and I said, do you think that Jesus needs to be Lord in order for you to be saved, or can you make him Lord like next year and still be saved? And they went, what? They just had no idea what I was talking about. Honestly, and I didn't, the year before that I was teaching them and everything, I had no idea about the brouhaha on Lordship Salvation. I just taught them God's word. But when I went to them and I presented that argument to them, they just went, what are you talking about? Because they understood from Adam on, one needs to submit themselves under the mighty hand of God and bring themselves back into a submissive role to their creator God through believing the gospel. Well, then it says resist. This is good. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know the power that you have now. Uh, turn over to Titus. <laughs> I love this. And we definitely are not going to get into much more than two or three of these. Titus chapter 2 is a marvelous text that explains to us the new power that we have as believers in God. Verse 11 begins, for the grace of God, there it is, that superbounding grace, that grace that is abounding, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteousness, uh, righteously and godly in this present age. Instructing us, 
commanding us to deny ungodliness. We have the power to say no to sin. The power of sin has been broken in every believer's life. The presence of sin remains. It's within us, the sin that remains, dwelling within us. It's in the world because it's a sin-cursed world. So we have temptation from within, temptation from without. But we have the grace of God within us that teaches us to deny ungodliness. When we are tempted to sin, we can say no. But you have to say no. You have to determine in your heart to say no. And then it's like magic, but it's not. It's supernatural grace. God enables us to turn away from the sin. He supercharges us our meager no. It's kind of like the priests had to put their foot in the water by faith before it dried up before them so they could cross, right? You have to choose. So men, you see that image and you say no. And as you say no, he will supercharge you and you won't look back. You won't dwell. Women, when you want your way and you decide this is not what God wants for me, no. With that no, he supercharges you with enabling grace, the power of salvation that's working you. And we begin to live differently than we used to before we were saved. And as we're saved, we grow more and more, strengthening that muscle of enabling grace so that our lives become more and more holy. Never to perfection. We'll still stumble. It's true. But we have the power to actually resist the devil. That's massive. You see, to resist is to stand against. And this shows a distinct contrast between two different spheres of life. In Ephesians 2.3, it says, we are all formally living in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There's those lusts, right? 1 Peter 5.9 says, resist him, firm in your faith. We're different. We're warriors now against those lusts and enemies. Jesus showed us how we are to resist the devil in Matthew 1, uh, 4, 1 through 11. He used the word of God and the sheer character of God with the result in Matthew 4, 11 saying, then the devil left him. He resisted and resisted and resisted and the devil fled. Wow, that's a lot of power. A lot of power that we have as believers. Are you using it in your life? Or is sin yipping the enabling grace of God? Is it overpowering that grace that's available to you? If it is, can I just tell you something that's going to make you mad at me? If sin is overpowering that enabling grace of God to deny ungodliness and turn from sin, if that's happening to you, it's your fault because you're yielding to the sin. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's true. You are choosing to yield to that sin rather than yield to the power of the Spirit of God that lives inside you. That power was the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So don't tell me it can't come overcome your sin. It can. Do we do it perfectly? Uh-uh. And that's the battle, friends. Oh, that which I do not want to do, I do. And that which I do, I don't want to do. That battle. And it'll go on until we're resurrected or raptured, when we have glorified bodies 
There will be no more sin dwelling within us and we will be raptured into a place where there is no sin and we won't struggle anymore. Can I get an amen for that? Thank you. We need that. And with that, I will stop because I want to have a good time of communion. And we have our dear friend Marlon, fellow elder, leading us in communion. And I'll pick up next week with Draw Near, and we'll go through the rest of this chapter. God bless you.